Babble Bullshit and Beyond, a podcast hosted by me, Marco Kiris, bringing you a standards perspective of the film industry and an immigrant's perspective on America. The most fluffy, fun pop bullshit you can tune into. Today on the podcast, we have Tate Simpson, nephew of mega blockbuster producer Don Simpson, who partnered with Jerry Bruckheimer to produce such films as Days of Thunder, Top Gun, and The Rock with Nicolas Cage. Don lived a lavish life that eventually led to his untimely death in 1996. Today, Tate and I catch up and tell stories of our working relationship in Hollywood and how his family made their mark in the industry. What's shaking, Marco? Holy moly, Tater. Hey. Oh, there you are. Wow, you look good, kid. Thank you, sir. So do you. Thanks, thanks, thanks. I'm still sporting the same hairdo. In case you forget what I look like, I will always sport that hairdo. Marco, I'll never forget what you look like. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to have transplants at some point. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for that comment. I'm not sure if it's a compliment. Some people say I kind of look like Gary Shandling these days, but I keep reminding them that he died. So that's that's never a good a good thing. When oh, you look like Gary Shandling, didn't he just die? Oh, oh yeah. Whatever you're doing is working, so. Well, it's 55 and holding, it's olive oil, you know. <laughs> it's a lot, it's more like Greek olive oil. And I use it for different reasons. But uh, it's a weekend moment. It's not the weekend. Okay, I won't stop on that. No, no. I'm done. Wrong. It's Thursday. <laughs> it is Thursday. But not for you. Look at those leather pillows. Oh, my God, you got a little leather belt to, to, to match that? Oh, no, there's, there's a, these are a weave. They're really soft. Really? Yeah, oh my um, God, they kind of—they're shiny though. They're they are shiny. shiny. They're shinier than yeah. my hair, dude. That's pretty strange. It's hard to come by. Yeah, I'm sitting. Well, the reason I'm sitting here is because not—not uh, that, not that you're not special to look at, but I have this fantastic <laughs> view out the window right in front of me, wow. and it's also great light on me. So you know yeah. that counts too. <laughs> it is. You look really good, Tate. I think Thank that you. environment suits you well. I'm so glad you're out of Brooklyn. Oh, you should have kept that apartment. I, I think I should have uh, sublet. You didn't apartment. own that place. We didn't own it. I know, but uh, I mean, you were, you were renting it. It was a nice rent. Yeah, yeah. It was a walk yeah, up, but it was nice. Expensive, though. It was? For, yeah. Well, it looks like you're chilling out in a sauna in Colorado, but I know it's not a sauna. <laughs> it's a day bed. I have, I have this whole like couch to or not couch like day bed to stretch out on it's quite comfortable is that a headboard it's the wall it is the wall okay yeah okay. i figured it was a wall but then you know i'm thinking of a big headboard like i have a big headboard oh, no. to match my hairdo yeah. it just goes up like five feet so but <laughs> so the yeah. family's there everybody's there and i guess the little one little june is is running around is she playing in the snow or is it too cold she might be awake now. She is uh, went down for a nap about two hours ago and is was totally exhausted. She went skiing with uh, huh. with my mom this morning, so they were up on the what's called the magic carpet. It's basically a a little conveyor belt that takes kiddos up um, this like one degree incline hill, and then they scoot down it. And she did that for a couple hours this morning, and it just wiped her out. So she's she's. Might be awake, but she was fast asleep five minutes ago. Wow. So, that sounds yeah. like fun. Those are the pleasures, I think, Tate. I mean, yeah. how cute is that? I've never gone skiing, so I would be on that conveyor belt. I'd be wearing yeah, a diaper yeah. so I don't poop it out the back end. <laughs> <laughs> I think. 
Tate, I want to ask you, because the guys were asking me, they're like, well, how long have you known Tate? And I'm thinking back, back, back. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember we met on Con Air along with Seth Jacobs. And you Seth, were... Seth didn't work on Con Air, but you didn't. and I met on Con Air. No. no what no, did he, he work there. on? He worked, we worked on Gone in 60. Mm. He worked on, um, what was the TV show? Um, no, I don't think you were on the TV because Nick, Nick wasn't in that. It was a TV show called Soldier of Fortune. It was another, um, Brookheimer thing. Yeah, it was pretty funny. We were out in like the, not in the Hollywood, I want to say in like the Santa Monica Hills or the Pasadena, like outside of LA, but not very far in, you know, in the desert basically but but the california desert clearly the california desert making it shooting it for iraq it was like kind of ridiculous <laughs> that's i mean it's a tv show back then that's what they did i still have a great um polaroid of seth when he got roped in to be a uh, an extra so they they were they were short on extras one day and so they roped in a bunch of the of the, the pas and uh he got he got he got basically it wasn't blackface, but he got like makeup, and he got um, a, you know a whole like fatigues and a and a and then you know kind of Kalishnikov and like it was ridiculous, and he he just ate it up. It was, oh my god! I mean, you can imagine it was like him at you know whatever we were nineteen or something twenty at that point. So a good Jewish boy <laughs> from the valley with red hair. He thought yeah. the helmet was a yarmulke. That's funny. Good old Seth. He looks good from what I see in the uh, in the pictures. And he's buffed out. He's like he's he looks like a, yeah. you know, he's a solid dude. Yeah, he's going to the gym. He's working out. I think he's healthy. So yeah. yeah. So we met on Con Air, and we were in the desert. Yeah. In Utah. Correct. Initially in Utah, right? And you yeah. were just a kid, and it, and I thought about once I met you and spoke to you and so forth. I was wondering why you didn't work on The Rock prior to that, and it was because you weren't 18 yet. I was only 18 when we were on uh, on Con Air, yeah. Yeah, so you would have been like 17, closing in on 18, so you couldn't legally work on a film because you were just yeah. a little kid. And uh, and you both came to visit me on 8mm with your entourage of sure. buddies. Well, yeah, we yeah, that, that was, uh, yeah, that was a number of years later, but yeah, that was. Was a, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> So Con Air, when I met you there, I was trying to figure out how a young kid would fly into Utah to do this show. And then, it, mm -hmm. you know, over time, as I make my ridiculous comments, and I always put my foot in my mouth more often than not, unfortunately. And then I realized that you were, you know, the contact too. I was a, I was a must hire. You That's were a why. must hire. Yeah, there was, there was a name for that. And yeah. <laughs> It was funny because you were so sweet, so innocent, so green, yet sure of yourself that you were on that. And you were a must hire. And oh, everybody yeah. treated no you doubt. that way. And I thought, who's this kid who's such a, you know, a nice young kid, but why would they bring him in from L.A.? And yeah. then it didn't make me. any sense. No. Well, yeah, I mean, that, but at the same token, like that's a pretty well thrown around term for what I was at that point, the must hire. But I got to say, every, well, A, you're right. Everybody knew it. Um Everybody was was really nice to me, except for my direct superiors. All the whole production department—they really put me through the paces. I mean, I felt like after that experience, I I could certainly hold my own. So I because I was there to work. I wasn't there to to futz around and, yeah. and feel like I was special. So 
and you were working. You were out in the desert holding that that uh, the walkie and basically rolling and cut. We had that. I shitty... guess if you could call it working, yeah. I mean, well, it was really... work because you had a purpose and and you were green and you were a young kid and you had to learn the ropes. But that second AD Bob was his name, Bob something. He was a fucking chore. That guy. The uh, the first AD was nice, but the the rest of the team was rough. They were fucking rough, rough, rough. They they put me through the ringer. And I had to work for Cage and Cusack. I was doing double duty, you know, flipping you were, outfits. Yeah. yeah, and I had my, my wife beater shirt on one minute, and then I had to wear, like, a nice shirt to look like Cusack. Then I had to flip that stupid wig. I looked like Tiny Tim in that wig. Didn't you have, like, a, didn't the wig have lamb chops or something? Did you, like, it was way over the, you know. It was. It was part of my Greek attire. But thanks for <laughs> thanks for noticing. I actually had a part in that movie. I played the I know Colombian drug lord Alec. Yeah. I remember that part. That was... <laughs> they, well, we had a couple of we did that part in Van Nuys at that at that airport hangar, but the the um, the large exterior thing was done in in Utah, and yeah. they gave me two or three lines in addition to a couple of those scenes, but they cut them out. I guess it was really bad, but uh, it did help with residual checks. I'll tell you that. So I still get them to this day. Uh, there you go. Silly as it sounds, but uh, they still. <laughs> I, I think it was the luckiest of standing alive who got stupid parts doing stupid things. So Tate, after that, um, we didn't do 60 seconds for a while after, afterwards. You were working on, did you do Gadget? Yeah, so I mean, when I started, my, uh, I was, you have to remember, I mean, I was 18 or 19 or something like that. It, it was, for me, a summer job. I mean, I would come home from school, come home from college, in, you know, and start on a, on a film, started on Con Air and then, and then on Gadget work for those three months and then wrap up and, and go back to school and then do it again the next year. So uh, there wasn't really a lot of, um, you know, it was, a, it was kind of a, an annual thing that I, that I got to do, which was pretty, pretty special. But first was, yeah, Con Air, then Gadget was the second. And then, uh, then was it Gone in 60 or was it, it might've been Soldier of Fortune and then Gone in 60. I'm not sure. Which. Yeah. I think it was that way. You know, after the first couple, I started, you know, I felt like I was, you know, I worked my way out of that must-hire position into someone that got hired because I had worked with those ADs and that crew before, basically, because a lot of those guys were, you know, vets of the same, yeah. same ADs, same directors, you know, same production staff. Tate, I'm, you know, I always go through different notes and stuff. And uh, and how close was was your father always close to your uncle, or were they kind yeah. of like? No, they were always really close. Um, I mean, my my dad followed. Uh, you know, they grew up in Alaska. Mm -hmm. um, so when my uncle went away to to college, he went to the University of Oregon. And when it was my dad's turn to go to college, he followed. Things that I'd read about the guy was actually a creative genius, and I read a lot about Don over the years I had, and I didn't realize during those years how creative, how smart he was. He was a writer. He uh, he could act. He was a producer, and he had the real gift of a gap. He was the ultimate. He was a, he was like a Robert Evans, but not up on that level at that time. Uh, mm. You know, he had one downfall, and that was. His, his alternative lifestyle, but in terms of a work ethic, he was uh, he was a monster with work. I, I would argue that that was those two things were so closely intertwined that uh, you know I mean he was he was a human being you know with lot lots of faults, but um, but I would say that what you're describing about his creative work ethic 
was very closely coupled with his, you know, his vices, as it were. I mean, the two fed off of one another, I think. I, you know, and but um, but yeah, he was quite creative, really um, powerful personality, very assertive, and loved to tell stories. I mean, you should be interviewing my father because he would tell you about yeah. how Don would sit down with him over dinner. And this is uh, like, you know, in the early 80s. And they would go to dinner and he would tell him a story. One, he would basically tell the screenplay of Top Gun before the film had been written or made. And he would tell it start to finish all the way through in great detail and spend an hour doing it. And then he would stop. He would say, okay, now how about this? And he would go through and he would tell the story of Top Gun told slightly differently for an hour a second time. And then he would do it a third time. And, you know, my dad would, he tells stories like this all the time to me. And I, I it's astounding. I can't, I can't fathom doing that. Um, I don't know any, anybody else who can do stuff like that, who can hold the big picture in their head in that way. And then also give you such detail and nuanced perspective. It's, it's, it's quite quite impressive from what i read he had quite that talent i, I agree with you tate from i mean within five six years he ended up being the president of production at paramount studios right. i mean at such a young age and so quickly i mean he just jumped so they obviously saw that he can do that and he had and that, a, he knew it would sell and he co-wrote yeah. cannonball which i didn't know <laughs> yeah it's a like little known fact i didn't that was one that always falls off my radar too but uh he um he had this great um frame in his in his house actually uh i think it was originally in their office but um it was of his business cards at paramount over the time he worked there essentially going from his entry level position to the head of production and they're they're, they're dated you know the, there's the business card and then there's the date below it at which he was promoted and the the span of time is like astounding it's like less than five years mm -hmm. that he went from you know just some associate producer or whatever it was to the head of production it was it was pretty pretty wild yeah i i don't think i've heard many stories like that and that's why people keep to this day credit don simpson with a lot of the creativity of um telling the stories and getting the right films made at the same time because he had done he co-produced american gigolo and the officer and a gentleman with paramount as well i mean this guy was super creative in terms of geniuses before he teamed up once he left uh, Paramount with um, Brookheimer when they did Flashdance mm -hmm. independently. But I think that was in 83 or 82. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Jerry at the time, I think Jerry was lucky to have Don, from what I read, I read a lot of interviews and it seemed from what I kept reading, Tate, that Don was that person. And he just, you know, he, but I didn't understand that the two personalities, meaning his alter ego were intertwined. I thought they were completely apart, but maybe they aren't. Maybe that's what drove him. I don't know if it necessarily drove him, but I guess what I mean by being intertwined is that, you know, it was all part of his his personality. And I don't know if you can parse it, you know, and separate it in a way. Uh, but yeah, I, I think they were lucky to find each other, Jerry and Don, because I think they were, you know, a, quite different in personality and complementing each other perfectly so um you know it's like any good marriage the you know the, you you find maybe what you 
what you're lacking or what you could use in in your partner. Mm-hmm. I, I read that that Jerry was more of the wife, very common sense, passive, sweet. Uh, you know, in that respect, and then Don Maybe. was more the aggressor. I have no uh, idea. But. <laughs> in the interviews I read that he was, you know, the the go getter in in uh, you know bringing the bread home, uh, in sort of sort of speak. But um, were you close growing up with your uncle, and were you looking forward to potentially working with him as you got older? Um, you know, well, you know, he died when I was seventeen, so yes. I didn't get a chance to really pursue that or or even really flesh it out. But it was. You know, even um, years prior to that, it was a, it was always in in my mind, and it was a, where I felt like I wanted to to go. Um, I I wasn't as close with him as I would have liked. Um, you know, I got to see him when we were living in Los Angeles. I got to see him a bit more. You know, I'd see him for Thanksgivings and dinners at the house and and things like that when he would come over. And occasionally in the summers, we'd go to his beach house in Malibu. And I remember hanging out there with my family and, and him and his friends. And and uh, and then, you know, but we weren't, I wouldn't say we had a, a real relationship um, because. You were still young. You know, I was, yeah, I was a kid, you know. I mean, uh, but at the same token, he was also, you know, often out of town on you know for months at a time so and a hollywood heavyweight one of the biggest you know they sure. apparently you know they grossed over 10 billion dollars together between don and jerry and uh, they were the biggest and most successful producing duo of all time and i felt that while i was on the rock and uh i kept waiting to see don he never came to the set and uh, i heard so much about him but they always had when we left san francisco uh from alcatraz and we made it to the sound stages of los angeles uh, to, they had they were the parking spots reserved for Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, the Ferraris, the dual Ferraris. And Don's car was already parked there, so we thought he was there, but he wasn't there. The car was sitting there, but they had their names on there just outside of the soundstage. And I thought it was real. I thought, wow, this is so damn decadent. I can, and then there was Michael Bay's just behind that. So I thought it was funny uh, that the cars were there, but I, I'd never met the man. I'd seen him. I've only seen photographs. And then one day, unfortunately, the day before he passed, he came to set. And um, everybody was in awe. Everybody stopped. They stopped shooting. Uh, It was like the Pope had arrived. I'm not kidding you, Tate. It was the one and only chance that I had to see and meet this person. He was fairly heavy at that time. His face was fairly swollen, but very clean looking. And uh, immediately, I remember the AD saying to Frank Massey, the stills photographer at the time, to photographed Don. So of course everything's owned by Disney. And he was snapping away as Donald's walking through the set. He wasn't there more than 10 to 15 minutes that I remember, but he was saying hello to Sean Connery and to Nick Cage and to, you know, kind of the heavyweights and just walking, making his presence known. And uh, the photographs were just flicking and flicking with Frank. And then the next morning, he unfortunately passed away as it was all over the papers, as we all heard. But uh, it was a bizarre sighting, the one and only time and then the very, I mean, he, it wasn't that he was gone months later, it was the very next morning. So it was uh, strange. Yeah. I f- think I remember reading, but I could be wrong, that uh, your father was negotiating a deal at this point for a film produced by him, but not with Jerry, because they had officially broken up their partnership. 
because of uh, Don's um, doctor who had overprescribed uh, pills, and then he passed away six months prior. Uh, doctor mm-hmm. Ammerman, I believe yeah. his name was. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that was that his name. That shut down Brookheimer completely, from what I read, and he said it was no more because something bad is going to happen to you, and inevitably, unfortunately, it did. And for some reason, he was still in his own fog, and he couldn't see that light, or didn't have enough chance, enough of time to regroup with his own headspace to you know, simmer down. Even if he had simmered down, maybe it was already too late. I'm not sure. But that was a wake-up call. Apparently. Yeah, I don't know if, um, I don't know when, when the um, the kind of separation agreement talks started, but I believe my dad was involved with that. And then uh, the way I understand it is that they had uh, ultimately had intentions that after that was completed, after that separation was completed, that the two of them were going to work together. Um, and... Uh, and you know, so my father was going to leave the firm and uh, and basically go into the production business with mm-hmm. Don. But you know that never happened. So, and was that do you think because Jerry just had enough of the the Don episodes and that he just didn't want he just needed a clean break at that time or was he already because Don was still part know. of a few other films after that wasn't his name on yeah. a few films oh yeah. oh yeah because you know they had they it's, shared ownership over projects that were already in motion yes. so there's a whole slate of co-owned projects but um, so yeah their their names remain together even after he he passed away but mm-hmm. uh but that was i think simply because there were projects that were in the under the umbrella of the Simpson Bruckheimer mm-hmm. um production uh, and and that you know thereafter there were projects that were that were solely Jerry's or solely Don's so yes. And I think that's what your father was working on along with the law firm and that Don was starting out on his own. It was in very good spirits from what I read on every single report, uh, Tate, that he had was changing his life around. But I think his life caught up to him. And as much as he wanted to oh, change yeah. his life, it already, you know, it ate up his heart and ate up his body. So it was already oh, too late. His head was in the right place, yeah. but his body had already been suffering. I mean, he'd been on that roller coaster for a long time, and yeah. I think I, I remember seeing that even as a kid, noticing that sometimes when he would come to the house, he was he was big and bloated and and looked just terrible, looked unhappy, looked um, unhealthy, and and then a couple of months later, when I'd see him, he'd be he'd be fit, he'd be strong, he'd be you know it was like a the polar opposite, and mm-hmm. I can only imagine that the, the Toll that like that takes on your body going through those those swings, you know, just physically transforming yourself from one extreme to the other. So, yeah, it it was a long time coming, probably. Uh, but yeah. But what I mean wasn't Jerry, you know, cool to start to work with Larry. I mean, Larry was exactly the opposite in that respect. He's like you. He's a fit person. You're a runner, Tate. You don't smoke. Your dad is a, he skis. He's 70 and skiing. Your mother skis at this age. I mean, these people are very healthy. And that's who Jerry is also. So I would think that Jerry would want to work with Larry because he's got the alternative now. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, uh, yeah, I certainly can't speculate on, on, on what Jerry thinks or thought. But, you know, my dad certainly had had and has his own ambitions to you know work in creatively in in the field so i think he's continuing to do so so it's uh yeah i i certainly 
see that creative drive in him. I don't quite know why it didn't work out uh, or why they chose, well, never decided to work together. Although, you know, my dad did work with um, Jerry peripherally on some of the projects after Don died as a consulting producer. Well, no, I think more as like a representative of the properties that were co-owned by Don uh, after the fact. I think like Enemy of the State was one of those projects and, and some others. Great so, um, so it's not that they didn't ever work together. I just think that when, when Jerry and Don were splitting up, I can only imagine that the last thing Jerry wanted to do would be go work with another Simpson. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean... You leave one, why would you why would you go marry another? So Well, they um, were very different people as well. Oh and, of course. Uh, yeah. But maybe he just needed that break. He just needed to cut ties at that point and just move on. And maybe oh. uh, you know, a solid divorce is the best way to go and just, you know, do your own thing and uh, and and just carry on in life. Yeah. And Tate, after that you I believe were starting a, a production company with Seth and you had scripts, and I think you wrote some scripts, and mm-hmm. you had your office in the, in, the, in the condo on Robertson Boulevard, just behind the Ivy. Right. We um, Well, that was stepping back just a, a hair after I um, you know, graduated from college. I ended up staying in New York for a number of years, working in right. a commercial production company um, out there. Um, doing you know production coordinating work and stuff like that and then came back to LA essentially to work on a on a project um, it was a oral history documentary of sorts that was about my uncle and about his life and his career and so I came back to go through the archive of all of his documents and materials and everything like that um, and at that point, I, I um, brought in Seth Jacobs, who was one of my oldest and best friends, if not my oldest and best friend, uh, to to help me on that project because it was, I mean, the amount of material that we had to uh, catalog was just enormous. Uh, and uh, and and then as as a tangentially to that we started developing a lot of projects together um, but we had always written together Seth and I um, and we had fancied ourselves uh, you know getting into that business even in high school you know we wrote short scripts and and produced and uh, he would effectively produce and I would direct these stories that we would write and um, things like that so we'd work together in in similar capacities since we were kids and so it was only logical that you know he and I would work together when I came back to LA and uh, and we did we did that for a number of years I think I was in LA for about three or four years um, writing developing you know pitching these projects as well as developing this documentary project where you know we were reaching out to all of Don's uh, associates and friends and and such to get their support to um, you know for this for this project what happened to that? Because there's never really been anything out there, a documentary right. or a fictional film or a nonfiction film, a book. I thought Oliver Stone read, uh, wrote some stuff about him. But yeah. of all people, an in-depth um, knowledge of your uncle would be you. And you're a mature man now who's married with a kid and you can 
you know, shed the light on really what happened, who he was as a person and what happened at the end of his career. He, I mean, the man was regarded as one of the most brilliant producers of all the time in modern day history. And that's a fact. You can't take that away. He had, you know, an alter ego with that. But you could, you know, enlighten people with this. I mean, my approach to that project was that I felt like it in a unique position to approach people who, who knew him in various stage of his, stages of his life and get their version of his story because, you know, if nothing else, Don was a fantastic storyteller and, you know, he was very inventive about his own personal history and, and that's well documented. Um, the, so my vision for it and I, this, this was something I developed with, with my father and with Seth is that that it would be a story about him told by the people who knew him. And, you know, I had a very, very small, you know, point of view about that. And I had a theory about what made him tick, but really the, what, how that project would have stood on its own legs was through the voices of, of other people that, that would have, you know, lended, lent their own opinion to, to him and how, you know, who he was. Um, so that, that was the idea and that's why I call it an oral history because it was really about the stories that other people would tell about him. So, and it, it, you know, never materialized, um, primarily because, you know, you can't, there was no way I could, uh, tell that story without the involvement of those people. And we were, you know, we were missing, uh, a key. That's a shame, Tate, because I mean, it's, he was like the, unfortunately, like the Elvis of producers, create, creative producers that brought uh, even smaller films that you would never think be so successful. He made them successful through Paramount, through Disney. He had the gift of the gab, he greenlit a lot of projects. He was like the guy. It's a, it's a shame that that didn't materialize. And unfortunately, he passed yeah. away in the same kind of manner as Elvis did. I'd read, you know, had all these doctors and prescription things. And, you know, by the time he got his head together, it was all too late. But... Yeah. What a great documentary from your perspective of having these people who knew him and worked along with him. Yeah. It's a shame. I, I thought it would have been pretty cool to, to see it materialize. I mean, I, if nothing else, I, I loved and got so much out of the experience of cataloging this material and talking to the people that I did speak with. Um, it was, uh, I learned things about him that I could never have imagined, both good and bad and have if for no other reason it was a it was a great gift to myself in the sense that like I have a more complete appreciation for who he was than I did beforehand and I and I wouldn't have otherwise if I didn't spend the time you know working on that project so it was uh it was really valuable for me personally I think that's great Tate there's a there was a quote by director Joe Schumacher Mr. 8 millimeter yeah. himself yeah. And uh, it said, Don lived exactly the life he wanted to live. Uh, he says, we all had the opportunities, all the intelligence, all the friends, all of the knowledge to have changed his life at any time. And he didn't want to. He just wanted to live the way he lived, according to Joe Schumacher. And, uh, and I'm sure that he and those two were buddies. And Joe had his past. Uh, somehow, miraculously, he's still... He survived because uh, he's had a real shaky past. 
and uh, and and he told me about it, a lot of stuff that he had done while we were on eight millimeter in, in that time that you had also visited. There was a a lot of talk. We spent enough hours having discussions about uh, things in the, on the dark side of life, and, right. and he was definitely a part of that. Uh, meaning Joel, but uh, yeah, oh, that's interesting. So Tate, uh, I want to thank you on that uh, note. <laughs> All right, Mark. Okay. It's good talking with me you. Me too. Thank you. Take it easy. Take care. That will wrap up our podcast with Tate Simpson, photographer and nephew of one of the most influential producers of the 80s and early 90s in Hollywood. Until next time, this is Marco Kiris signing off.